Don Luca, smoke you like my hookah Pump fake right, then I step back in illusion That's a boss move maneuver, billionaire entrepreneur Mark Cuban on the viewer, put you rookies on a skewer I stay shitting on you boys like I came up from the sewer Used to have a lot of dollars, now I got a lot fewer What you saying to me? I hope you save it for me I'm about to kill the game, and I put it in my testimony Hi, welcome to the Mainstream Mass Podcast. This is your host, Will. I'm unfortunately not joined here today by my co-host, Jaren Rodrigo, as we just had some conflicts come up. But nonetheless, I'm going to get this solo podcast out for you guys. Today, we are going to be covering the Mavericks 122-114 to victory over the Sacramento Kings um, the other day on Friday night, as well as their 128-133 to overtime loss to the Sacramento Kings. The Mavericks, of course, played a home-and-home where we saw the debut of Luka Doncic and Kyrie Irving together. There was a lot of positives. There's There were also some late game scenarios that didn't pan out exactly as we would have hoped in the debut, but nonetheless, we'll be plowing through everything. I do want to preface that at the end of the day, guys, it was their first game together. You're going against the three seed in the West on a second night of a back-to-back. They hadn't even practiced once together. So I'm not reading too much into any of the pessimistic narratives regarding Luca or Kyrie's fit so far in this sort of a short process that we've had with them playing together so far. But nonetheless, the game where um, without Luca the other night, where it was Kyrie's second game with the Mavericks, that was a really fun one versus the Kings. There's a lot of different stuff to get into and some narratives to pull from these two games for sure. And there's some buyout guys that we'll be getting into at the end of the podcast that I want to touch base on that the Mavericks may or may not be interested in. It was announced yesterday that Terrence Ross is likely going to sign with the Suns. So that ship just kind of sailed in a sort of 12 to 15 hour process for the Mavericks where it seemed like they were going to get Terrence Ross, but he kind of pulled a DeAndre Jordan and then went to Phoenix. So there's definitely um, a hole at that ninth or 10th spot in this roster um, in terms of applying somebody in the rotation. Theo Pinson's kind of been filling that void as of recently. Uh, but nonetheless, we're going to be looking at some of those guys as well as getting into these games between the Mavericks and Kings in this home and home in Sacramento before the Mavericks head back to the AAC for Kyrie's home debut, which is going to be 730 tomorrow night on Valley Sports Southwest versus the Minnesota Timberwolves. But before we get into this podcast, here is an ad from our sponsor, Anchor. All right, so getting into this one here, guys. Just from both of these games over the weekend specifically, I wanted to rattle this off the top, okay? I am not one to try and criticize the refereeing in a lot of these matchups. I tend to try and diagnose the issues that the Mavericks have wrong with them and go through the actual basketball court on stuff. But I do want to preface that some of the refereeing was pretty egregiously bad in these affairs, especially just some of the ticky-tacky fouls that were getting called against the Mavericks. One that I can point to specifically was last night's game when the Mavericks lost in overtime. Uh, In overtime, in that overtime period, Josh Green was on the baseline and he ended up um, just like barely bumping De'Aaron Fox and De'Aaron Fox sold the call and he kind of fell back into a mid-range fallaway jump shot on the baseline and they called a foul and he got to shoot two free throws. And it it did seem that there was just an excess of sort of ticky-tacky fouls that were getting called respectively against Mavericks who were defending against Savonis and Fox. And I'm not going to read too much into it. The Mavericks definitely shot themselves in the foot in many aspects late in the game, especially in that second game that 
ended up obviously um, projecting their downfall. But nonetheless, I, I do want to acknowledge that the referees were not the best and had some things gone the right way, the Mavericks very well could have won a game that's margin was so slim in terms of how marginalized the Kings were able to come away with that victory in the second game. So getting that out the way, let's go ahead and get into this first game here, which the Mavericks did win 122 to 114. So to start off, the Mavericks came out a blazing out the gates. It was reminiscent just of that Clippers game that they had played in Kyrie's debut. And it was a real sight to see. They outscored the Kings 45 to 25 in that first quarter. Uh, Kyrie was acting more in a facilitatory role than I think we saw in that Clippers game. And I mean, he did even so last night in that second Kings game, but particularly with Luca off the floor in that first Kings game, it was interesting to see him take matters within his own hands and, you know, not sort of yield to anybody else. I mean, yield to anybody else from a playmaking perspective, but also, you know, yielding to others to go ahead and make plays because, the Mavericks in that first game, they they ran a lot of horns and zoom actions to try and get Kyrie the ball. The the Kings definitely were diagnosing the fact that, you know, without Luka out there, Kyrie is going to have to, you know, he's going to have to take a bulk of the offense away. And um, the Kings, you know, kind of defended him accordingly. They were, they were throwing a lot of doubles and traps at him. And the Mavericks were doing some real nifty things to get him the ball, you know, running staggers. Um, you know, horns and zoom actions to try and free, free everything up. And they, they did that, of course, when Luca got back in the second game, but we saw it very prevalently in that first game. And it did open up the Mavericks offense to an extent because um, in no small part because of the emergence from Josh Green, uh, just from a attacking and a playmaking perspective, right? This is a guy who in multiple instances in that first game, you know, he ended up finishing with 17 points and seven assists, but I mean, it, it, once Kyrie was getting trapped or doubled and he could hit Josh Green on a cross-court pass or, you know, they were running even on occasion Josh Green off some of these staggers to get him the ball off a of curl off or, you know, he, he just does such a good job. I've always kind of said about this just in terms of his relocation. Uh, when one of Kyrie or Luca is driving to the paint, you can just watch Josh off ball, even if there's nothing drawn up for him. He has a tendency to just understand spacing really well. He'll go set a pin down for somebody or he'll, you know, consolidate and go ahead and go to the corner, even if it's unprompted. And though that sort of just offensive awareness that he has started to hone in on has been wildly impressive to me. And it's something that we've really seen within this last two to three week span from him. Ever since he got back from his injury, he, he's really transcended to another level offensively just in terms of his ability to attack off a closeout. I mean, even his ability from the top of the key above the break, um, making things and creating things for himself. This is not something that even pre-injury Josh Green we were really necessarily seeing from him. I mean, yes, he, he, he was doing a good job moving off ball. He was obviously filling in the gaps as a cutter you know, doing a great job running the floor and his catch and shoot threes, especially from that corner area, were, were going good. And all those things are still in play. But now, I mean, we're seeing just a whole nother dynamic to this guy in terms of on occasion, him having the ability to furbish offense for himself. I mean, it's we haven't seen him really step into that mold of 
you know, top tier playmaker or shot creator yet, but I mean, he's doing things that would lead one to the, to believe that he's developing into that area because I mean, he'll be above the break and, you know, if nothing's set, he'll, and the defense is just, you know, a little out of sorts. I mean, Josh is going to go. I mean, even if nobody else has touched the ball, that possession, he, you know, he still has some hesitancy, of course, in terms of when he's driving you or, um, you know, he's on the wing and you would maybe hope that he doesn't make an extra pass or he just, you know, takes things into his own hands, but it's in no small part due to the fact of how effective he's been in these scenarios. I mean, I think he's, I saw a stat the other day. I mean, he's shooting the highest percentage in the league in terms of like six, seven and under guys at the rim. Like it's absurd, his finishing ability um, and just his, you know, the wherewithal to be able to, and the resourcefulness to be able to get to the rim. I mean, you just didn't see these sort of things in his bag a year or two ago. I mean, much less even three months ago. And, you know, he's hitting floaters over people. He's, you know, getting all these contact finishes. He's hero stepping on guys, literally just taking guys one-on-one um, using his quickness and, you know, his foot speed to be able to, you know, cross guys over. Um, he does a really good job of um, using his body in the lane when he's driving, particularly, you know, when he's having to go head up on guys uh, just in terms of slowing down. He, he has a sort of controlled chaos when he drives. That's been really interesting to observe because I like to say that before, you know, this year it was more just chaos. Now it's a sort of controlled chaos. Like sometimes you'll think, oh, man, where is this possession going? Josh is all out of sorts going to the rim. And all of a sudden he's able to take a gather step and, you know, give a nice little dump off to a guy in the lane for an easy finish, or he's able to somehow go up and make a tough layup. And it's just a sort of, I guess, honing in on the athletic tools that were already there that we just didn't really foresee happening, at least to this degree. And he's evolutionized into a different sort of player over these last two games. I mean, not, not, these last two games are more so a microcosm of the last like 10 to 15 games, but just in general, I mean, the amount of offensive versatility that he's bringing to the table has truly been unprecedented for, I think anything that we could have hoped or imagined in terms of his game. So he was huge in that first game, just in terms of his ability to get into the lane and make those wraparound passes, you know, being a playmaker, uh, running in transition, the Mavericks' pace of play in that first game versus the Kings uh, was a lot of the reason as to why they got off to that 20-point lead early on that for- first quarter, leading 45 to 25. That, along with some great shooting, the Mavericks ended up finishing 18 of 43 on three-pointers that night. 17 of 35, I believe, was a stat I saw in terms of their above-the-break threes, meaning that, I mean, they only made like one corner three. A lot of these were relegated to those above the break threes. And they were just doing a really good job spreading the ball in that first game. The off ball movement um, was honestly to a level in that first game that we had never seen. Jason Kidd opened up the toolbox for lack of a better term. And I don't know if it was because of Kyrie's presence or, you know, Luca being out or what exactly it was, but the Mavericks were running just so many more staggers, dribble handoffs, Uh, horns and zoom actions that had a lot of different contingency options off them the Mavericks you know have ran a lot of actions this year you know like Spain pick and roll and you know high pick and roll of Luca of course that kind of just involve the guys at the point of attack you know the screener and 
the ball handler, things of that nature. And, you know, there tends to be just kind of a lot of floating around the arc for some of the other dudes. Um, that's not to say that they just don't run any sort of plays that involve, you know, the aforementioned actions that I was talking about, but it definitely seemed even more prevalent in Luca's absence in that game versus the Kings. Um, the first game that is where the Mavericks won 122 to 114. And they were, I mean, the offense was humming, um, in all sort of aspects. And really until that fourth quarter, things started to come to a stalemate, but Kyrie was able to bring them over the finish line uh, in no small part due to his free throw shooting and his ability to attack. And, you know, having a guy that can make 12 out of 12 free throws in a close game like that, I mean, that's truly invaluable. And his clutch presence has been extremely noteworthy these last two games, especially even since Luca's been here. It's been one of the hallmarks of his game that I think was maybe undermined to an extent pre-trade. Uh, just having another guy that can go get a bucket at a moment's notice, that is huge in today's NBA when star players are you know, opposing defenses put just so much of a point of emphasis on doubling them and trapping them and getting the ball out of their hands in those waning moments, You know, forcing other guys. And for the Mavericks to have just two go-getters, two superstars, to be able to create offense for themselves in those waning moments. You know, if one guy is off or, you know, even if both guys are on, you can use one as a decoy. Those are the type of things that are really going to swing the tide of some of these games where the Mavericks have been having late game woes. I mean, let's face it, this team has had some clutch time hiccups this season where they blow some leads when we wouldn't expect them to. And they just have a tendency to, underperform and stall out in terms of their offense outside of Luca and the clutch. And um, I think Kyrie can be a solvent to that to an extent. And, you know, even though he only went five for 14 that game and his shot kind of abandoned him at points, he did a great job playmaking. He was a great, one of the things that I, you know, really noticed about Kyrie since he's been here is just how good of a ball mover he is. I talked about that with Spencer to an extent, but, you know, just outside of Kyrie's, um, versatility as a passer and his ability to see the floor and, you know, make those flashy passes, something that, you know, I didn't necessarily didn't think Dinwiddie was the best at just from a playmaking perspective. I always saw Dinwiddie more as a ball mover, a guy that, you know, could get the offense going uh, by virtue of, you know, him driving and drawing guys and using his size to pass over guys, but he, he didn't have the court vision that a Kyrie has and Kyrie, in tandem with his court vision also has, you know, that ability to move the ball and just set up possessions accordingly. Uh, the ball never seems to stick when it's with Kyrie. It seems like there's always some sort of action that is going through him. And he honestly has been very enlightening from that perspective, just his ability to, you know, generate offense, even if he's not the one catalyzing the offense, if that makes any sense. Um, getting action sets up, you know, when you can see like when the Mavericks are like running their sense, just his attention to detail and how uh, locked in he is when he's on the floor, you know, on those offensive sets. And, you know, you can hear him calling out plays, things of that nature. I mean, the Mavericks just don't have anybody that can do that outside of Luca. And, you know, those tennis, those ten assists that he had the other night in that first Kings game are a direct reflection of that um, just in terms of how, he's able to start, um, you know, catalyzing possessions and, you know, really forcing the issue 
and getting the guys going essentially that you can tell that his teammates respect him and that there's a desire to almost perform for this guy. I mean, Jason Kidd even talked about in one of his post-game interviews that there's been a noticeable, noticeable shift in JaVale McGee ever since the Kyrie trade happened. And I mean, obviously these last two games are a reflection of that in terms of how JaVale's played and we'll get into how he's played later, but you can see that there's definitely just a different Aurora with the team in terms of their sense of urgency. Now, you know, you can criticize them for not having that beforehand and, you know, criticize them for that being something that may have only happened post-trade, but nonetheless, it's definitely a welcome sight, just how prevalent that sense of urgency is and that desire to be locked in and honed in on all, you know, all facets of the game, you know, both on both sides of the ball, even if the Mavericks don't have the best defense, you know, the best defense personnel wise, that there definitely just seems to be a better attention to detail, um, you know, more competitiveness, more effort. And, you know, I use those two terms gingerly because these are obviously NBA players are obviously trying hard and everything, but it just seems as if the energy is elevated to a level that it just wasn't at before trade. And I don't think that that's even a vast understatement. So Kyrie just being able to raise the energy, raise the ceiling of this team has been truly um, invaluable in sight for sore eyes. Looking at this game, just in general, you know, obviously it was a wire to wire win for the Mavericks. They obviously, you know, started to fall off a little bit each quarter offensively. It That was um, the Kings actually won every quarter um, after that first quarter, which the Mavericks outscored them by in a crazy 45 to 25. But for whatever reason, you know, they were only winning each quarter by about two to four points. They just never were able to swing things back in their favor enough. And that was kind of how the game felt to an extent. It almost felt as if the Mavericks were veering them off more so than ever closing the door. They never really seemed as if they took real control of this game, but it, it was a, it was a win that was much needed um, as are all the wins. Now that the position that the Mavericks have put themselves in, they are viewed as legitimate, even if you don't view them as a contender. They are, they're a legitimate playoff team, and they're an all-in team, if that makes any sense, even if they're not a contender. And, you know, the losses do tend to hurt a little bit more when you have took that step to, you know, win at all costs. You know, pre-trade, the Mavericks were still a great team, and they were still, um, you know, they had their rough nights. They had their downfalls, and they obviously had their games where they looked like they could beat anybody in the West. But they didn't really have a sort of clear sense of direction. And now they have a clear sense of direction. No, no matter how you want to twist it, no matter how good they are, they have a sense of direction and that is to win a championship. Now, whether that goal is going to be accomplished with, you know, the rendition of this roster and maybe X buyout guy that might get signed that we'll kind of get dip into later. That's to be determined, but you can at least admire that they have a sense of direction now and that this team's pining for a championship. I think that's one of my biggest, um, just sort of takeaways from this trade. And one of my favorite things to take away from this trade, because having that as an NBA team, as a fan, it definitely feels more comforting than, you know, when your team's sort of dwelling in mediocre dome, it, it kind of just feels like a perpetual cycle of when's this going to change. So that, that has definitely been something that is um, refreshing to say the least, but obviously, you know, the Mavericks defensively in this one, I thought that they played pretty good defense in that first Kings game. 
Um, and really until the second half that the Kings started to swing things back into their favor in no small part due to the attacking of De'Aaron Fox and, you know, DeMontis Sabonis being able to establish his presence on the inside. He had a double-double with 18 and 11. And, you know, within both these games, you just see the dynamism that he brings to the table, you know, being able to operate as a passer out of the post. He's, he's just really strong. You know, he has an array of post moves. He's really savvy, always, you know, seemingly in the dunker spot at the right moment whenever a Kings guard is able to penetrate and, you know, dip it into him in the paint. And De'Aaron, man, watching him in some of these games, he's took his game to just another level on both sides of the ball. He's, you know, he, he projected as a really good defensive player coming out of college, but right now he's, you know, really honing in on that name, Swipe of the Fox. He is, you know, really staying as a true testament to that nickname. And just in terms of his off-ball defense and him being able to stick guys one-on-one, uh, some of the possessions that he's had to guard Kyrie. I mean, yes, there have been some arguable foul calls. And, you know, I know Mavs fans on Twitter will bring that up, but he's been doing a great job just um, really establishing establishing his presence on both sides of the ball um, from a playmaking and defensive perspective. And he, he's, you know, this his three-pointer definitely isn't the hallmark of his game still, but the way that he's able to synchronize and size up into some of these mid-range jump shots is, you know, the way his, the way his size ups are, you know, end up kind of proceeding. They just, it, it's a stark difference from what it was maybe a year or two ago when we saw a much more confident guy out there shooting. I mean, still a guy that could attack and get a bucket at a moment's notice, you know, coming off a pick and roll, if there's any sort of open lane, just due to a sheer, you know, speed, speed and athleticism, but, you know, his ability to, you know, keep the defense honest and, you know, use that mid-range to his advantage. That's been a big takeaway. And he was really hurting the Mavericks in that first game from that. But I think the sort of downfall from the Kings in that first game was they they kind of just weren't getting anything from their bench. Um, yes, Kevin Herter had an okay shooting game. You know, he was coming off those curl-offs and DHOs and making a few mid-range jump shots. And Keegan Murray got going from three in that first game. But, you know, Harrison Barnes, he was – a very conservative three of nine in that first game. You just didn't see him as an aggressor. He wasn't providing too much on offense and that definitely played to the Mavericks benefit and the Kings, you know, their, their bench just played real sparingly they, they got a few threes from Terrence Davis, but Malik Monk got hurt in that first game, something that ended up keeping him out the second game. He, he played okay, but before he got injured, but he only ended up playing 15 minutes. You know, Davion Mitchell only saw 12 minutes in that game. Chemezi Metu was the benefactor of a few lobs, but, you know, Trey Lyles only played seven minutes. They just weren't getting a lot from everybody outside of that, you know, upper echelon of their team, of course. And, I mean, to their credit, they have a very dynamic starting five. You know, I, I really like Keegan Murray's game. This is a three and D, D guy as at slightly biased on Twitter kind of denoted. That's a kind of term that's I've had fun throwing out there, you know, guy that is a three and D player at face value, but, you know, has another arsenal and another level that he can get to in his game or is developing just from a playmake, whether it's a playmaking perspective or, you know, a, a dribbling perspective, that was kind of what he was talking about. What's that was the third D in the, or the second D in the whole three D and D thing. But um, that that's kind of how Keegan Murray projects. And I mean, this guy could be really good one day and, you know, he wasn't as, 
productive in that in that second game versus the Kings, but that first game, you did see why he was selected top four in the draft because of his defensive ability that, you know, is to an extent a work in progress. But, you know, once he really hones in on those physical tools, he, he's, you know, as does any rookie who kind of has their defensive bouts their first year. I mean, he's going to be really scary, man. So, you know, to, to the Kings point, you know, obviously the Mavericks don't have a lot of rim protection. I'll, I'll get into JaVale McGee playing and stuff, and he's had a very productive last two games. But, you know, even he, I, I saw some somebody on Twitter say, that he sort of has the triangle button delayed. Um, JaVale, you know, his presence alone and his ability to block shots in spurts, especially as a trailer in transition, and, and you know, in those pick-and-roll scenarios when he's, you know, kind of coming up from behind somebody, he has the tendency to be able to sneak up on guys. But, you know, the whole triangle button delayed thing is, you know, when JaVale is one-on-one with somebody – he just does not have the anticipation to jump at the right time, which is kind of funny. And you do see a lot of these opposing centers, especially a Sabonis or a Jokic, uh, the guys who have the you know, ability to use that post game to their advantage and just back you down into oblivion and just you know shoot over the top of you. I mean, they're, they're getting shots up before JaVale can even react, even if he does have the length to be able to defend it. So, it, you know, just from an anticipatory standpoint he obviously in the Mavericks were gonna struggle of course when he was in there coupled with Dwight Powell and you know obviously Dwight Powell he tries his ass off on defense as hard as he can but you know time and time again he just doesn't have the ability to flip his hips in the pick and roll you know he, he doesn't have the the length to be able to or the anticipation for that matter to really you know stay in that threshold against some of these, you know, stronger centers, even though he is a pretty like strong stout guy, he, he just doesn't have those anticipation skills. And, you know, sometimes he has a tendency to over foul. He, his verticality on defense is questionable at times. So, I mean, we all know Dwight Powell's track record as, as a defender, but it did seem in the minutes that JaVale was in there that they were at least getting a little more um, oomph, if you, you know, want to call it that in terms of the defense from the big man perspective, because his presence alone just kind of is more daunting and threatening. I think, especially to opposing guards, Uh, a lot of opposing guards are just going to go in on Dwight with not even, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, they're just going to drive in on him and not even think twice about it and finish over the top, you know, same as a lot of wings, but with JaVale in there, they'll definitely guess it. They'll second guess it once or twice, just from the perspective of how big he is. Um, so, you know, and I thought he had a few decent defensive possessions as a rim protector. I don't think the Mavericks necessarily have like any true rim protector on their team at the moment. Um, you know, Maxi can supplement as a rim protector, but even then he's, he's a versatile defender, sort of jack of all trades utility guy that you know, while being able to rim protect, you know, he also can defend on the perimeter. And I, I would say that he's definitely, he definitely doesn't specialize in either one of them and, if he is overused at either one of them, that's when we start sort of see the downsides um, of him at either one of those positions, because, you know, we see him always get some sort of leg injury when you're asking him to guard the perimeter too much. Cause you know, it's just a lot to be able to keep up laterally time and time again with some of the faster guys in the league. And then, you know, he always ends up getting banged up if he's having to constantly bang against some of these guys that are just 10 times bigger than him. But 
I mean, he is a defensive, you know, sort of versatile chess piece. And I am anxiously awaiting his return to say the least, because he would have definitely helped in these last two games. But nonetheless, um, you know, JaVale McGee's emergence, just being able to be there has definitely been something that's helped a little bit. And in the fact that, you know, his anticipation does seem at least a little better. Um, Dwight Powell has still been contributing as a great roller in this Mavericks offense. Um, you know, just, just setting the play up at the elbow if they're running a horns action or, you know, still just being that, um, just being that constant in those high screen and rolls, you know, setting solid screens, rolling to the rim, same old Dwight Powell, um, staying in the dunker spot, you know, being a trailer in transition, just always doing what he's asked to do. Um, that that's been the reason that he's in the starting lineup right now. And, you know, a sort of indictment upon a guy that is not getting many minutes right now that is sifting behind McGee and Powell. And of course that's Christian Wood, you know, and I wanted to get into him because I think that that's a huge compelling narrative to take away from these last two games. And I, I do want to, you know, I wanted to give Powell and particularly McGee, his praise because, you know, JaVale's done a really good job rolling, even in he's kind of taken advantage of mismatches sometimes, you know, when he gets somebody matched up on him that he has a size advantage on at the elbow or something like JaVale's like taking them to the rim and finishing over the top. So, you know, him still being a proactive roller, kind of giving you what Dwight does in that sense, but also having a little bit of a, a drive and go game, you know, sometimes he'll fake those DHOs and just dive to the rim. I mean, that's been, a sight for sore eyes, you know, his offensive emergence is kind of, I think what's been netting him some of these minutes, you know, played 19 minutes that first game. And I think he played over 15 that second game, you know, along with just a sort of increased sense of urgency defensively, even if the anticipation's kind of thrown off and JaVale's been doing a good job rebounding. So, you know, that's why I wanted to give him and Dwight their credit where it's due, but it, you know, the Mavericks, Christian Wood's situation is definitely something to monitor. So, you know, obviously Christian Wood didn't get traded after the trade deadline. And, you know, he went to Twitter and, you know, tweeted that he beat our trade rumors and all that sort of stuff. And I do sincerely enjoy the guy and I have loved his time in Dallas from a basketball perspective. He, he's brought um, a level of, scoring from that center position that the Mavericks just necessarily haven't had for, you know, well, I guess since KP, but in a different manner than KP, you know, Christian Wood, I think is more uber efficient than Porzingis was as a Maverick, at least. He's a guy that, you know, dives hard to the rim. Obviously he's also going to stretch the floor and can take guys one-on-one -on -one from the wing. Um, you know, if he needs, he, he has the ability to face up occasionally post off and seal on some smaller guys but and he's still doing all those things accordingly you know particularly that stretching the floor aspect of things he's shot the three ball really well these last two games but obviously the main gripe with Christian Wood for those of you that don't know is his defense and these last two games have been a microcosm of an overarching narrative that has sort of been a black hole in his game this season and for a long stretch there, Christian Wood was actually sort of coming into his own defensively. And we really start, you know, we started averaging about two blocks a game. You know, this is, of course, when he started starting after Dwight and Maxie went down with the, that, those injuries. And 
I think this is about from late December onwards until his recent thumb injury that he suffered against Portland, I think either about a week or two weeks ago, however. But of course, now he's not starting. And, you know, I thought that this was some sort of bringing him along speed type of thing that the Mavericks were doing, that they just sort of wanted to vet him till he was good again, that he was fully comfortable after that thumb injury. And this still very well could be that, but we cannot subside the fact that this guy is suffering heavily defensively right now, more so than he was. I mean, Christian Wood's stronghold as a defender has always sort of been his ability to guard wings and guards in space and spurts. And I, I've always sort of thought that he his fit is uh, best next to a rim protector. And we, we saw even in those minutes that he played with Maxi, but when they were still both healthy together, were honestly some of the more productive minutes defensively that he played. But even so, when he was asked to play the five and he was that lone five in the Mavericks starting lineup, he wasn't elite by any stretch of the imagination. He wasn't Miles Turner out there, but he was holding his own. And, you know, it's just been a stark contrast these last few games to where you would rather him just, you would rather just switch everything and take your chances on him guarding a guard head up than even, you know, try and play that sort of in between defense in the pick and roll where, you know, he doesn't know if he should come up to the level of the screen or drop and is trying to sort of play the ball handler and play the roller at the same time. He, he just doesn't have the awareness and he's getting torched in all these scenarios. And on top of that, you know, he's losing his man on rotations. There were multiple times in that second game where Trey Lyles was just taking advantage of him and he was able to stretch the floor and Christian Wood was just nowhere to be found. He's getting beat off the dribble, even when he is going up against wings and guards. And it's honestly kind of put me in a sort of ultimatum here with Christian Wood because as good as his offense has been in these limited minutes, I mean, I, I do see, I guess, why he's getting these limited minutes. And it definitely, you know, you start talking about roles on this team. And I mean, should this be a guy that's seen more as this sort of like 6'10 spark plug guy that's coming off the bench to, you know, provide, you know, sort of a microwave offense type guy? Or should this be a guy that we should still be trying to bring up to speed to get into the starting lineup? And I mean, I don't know where I'm at on it. You know, I, I think I tend to agree with the sentiment that he should, you know, definitely come off the bench now until he's able to, you know, at least get back somewhat to what he was defensively. If he can at least just be average or capable defensively, that's really all that we're asking uh, here for, because when he was doing that pre-injury, it definitely, you know, he, he wasn't cleaning up the, all the, issues that the Maverick, the Mavericks perimeter defense had. And it's not like he was just some sort of cure-all, but he was holding his own. And, you know, and I think the Mavericks could have definitely served to experiment with him and Maxi in the starting lineup once Maxi got back and seeing how you could use Wood to guard more in space and using Kleber as that back line of defense. But this, you know, defense that he's playing right now, I mean, it's just – it's horrific. Like he's, he's really just unable to guard anybody head up and he's getting lost on all of his rotations. He's just not able to stay with anybody, um, you know, past just base level stuff. And it, it's disheartening. And I, I hope he gets back to where he was at because he has came in and supplemented really well um, offensively in, in due time. And, you know, he's doing his due diligence there, but 
he also has to do his due diligence on the other side of things. And in terms of the minutes that he's getting, I, I think I'll get a little more concerned if this sort of persists throughout the next game or two, because just because of the nature of who this guy is, I, I think he's got to play more. And I, I think the Mavericks got to keep trying that they, they chose to keep him on his, on this roster. They got to try to make it work. They got to try to get his defense back to where it was. And I, if I was him personally, I, I would definitely feel a sort of contempt about the amount of minutes I would be getting. But I mean, nonetheless, he still has to, you know, prove as to why he should be getting these more minutes. And it, it almost does seem at times as if Jason Kidd has some sort of weird vendetta against him and treats him tougher than some of the other guys and lets other guys make more mistakes. And I, I fully am here for that narrative and I would probably subscribe to it as well. But at the same time, Christian Wood's defense is atrocious right now. And it, it almost offsets some of the offensive production that he's being able to bring to this team right now. I mean, in that second game specifically, just from an effort perspective, he wasn't running back in transition at all. I mean, just like little things like he seemed like he could give honestly, you know, less of a care in the world of getting scored on so long as, you know, he could sort of nickel and dime into a couple Euro steps and drain some threes. So that's definitely something that's got to be attended to. And I don't know necessarily what the solvent to that issue is other than Christian Wood just stepping up defensively a little bit, but I, I would hope that the Mavericks coaching staff recognized, you know, recognizes that, you know, I don't know if this is some sort of injury deal as to why he's not getting any, you know, this many minutes or what, but they've got to start playing him at least a little more because, you know, he definitely still affects the ceiling of this team, even in a Luca Kyrie era, you know, he's a ceiling Razor, and he's he's also a floor lower depending on how he ends up playing. So th this is a guy that the Mavericks need to figure out if they can, you know, bring back and especially when Maxi gets back, hone in on his defensive tools and what he's best at. Um, you know, and also just in terms of when he's alone, big on the floor, at least getting him up to speed to where he can be capable again. And we're just going to have to see if they can do that. And if they'll play in more minutes, because right now it's a real sketch situation um, to say the absolute least. Just to wrap up that first game versus the Mavericks and the Kings, um, just going off some of the Mavericks role players performances here, um, specifically like the starters and stuff in terms of how they fared, like just some guys that I didn't mention. Tim Hardaway Jr., he had 15 points, 6 for 16 from the field. Uh, it was a fairly abysmal shooting night for him. He did end up getting hurt. Was it either in that first or second game? Yeah, Tim got hurt in the second game, so that was a sort of little mental lapse by me. But he, he had an okay game. I mean, just your typical lackluster shooting Tim Hardaway Jr. game where, you know, he'll get out and transition, few, score a few baskets. Every once in a while, he's able to take a DHO and – go straight to the rim, um, but also the errant shot attempts, also the, you know, dribble pull-up threes that you would rather him probably not take. So, I mean, pretty typical game from him from that standpoint. He's definitely, you know, amidst the Mavericks kind of getting in sync a little bit more with their team defense, something that's been distinguishable since the Kyrie Irving move. Tim Hardaway Jr. has been the one guy that's kind of fell behind that mark, Well, I, as has Christian Wood, of course, but – it, the Mavericks do seem like they have, you know, they ran to, they went to zone a few times in these last couple of games, but I mean, their, their wings are just doing a good job. And, you know, the wings, when I'm saying that, that being Bullock and Josh Green, of course, 
from just playing the low post up on onwards and um, doing a really good job in sort in terms of picking those passing lanes and um, really just tracking guys on their rotations and just being cognizant of their surroundings. I think that Mavericks defensive awareness and their attentiveness has been definitely noticeably more um, attuned than it was, I would say, probably pre-Kyrie trade. Now, I don't know how long the effects of that are going to last. And I mean, give or take, they are giving up a lot of points to the Kings in these two games. When you look at it at face value, or, oh, 114 points in that sec- in that first game, 133 in that second one in OT. But we do have to realize that this Sacramento Kings team does have the number one offense in the NBA. So, you know, they're, they're ex- extremely fast paced as we've seen in both these games. And the Mavericks, especially in that first game, did a good job of matching that pace. And, you know, it's hard to stop them and particularly in transition with Fox's speed and everything. And, you know, in the half court, they can just kind of nickel and dime and use a bonus as that centerpiece in the post to generate offense. But nonetheless, I think the Mavericks have done a fairly decent job in the last two games defensively. Um, definitely not an elite or some sort of outstanding performance that is noteworthy to the point to where we need to start, you know, saying, oh, the defense is back from last season or anything like that. But they, they've held their own against a very talented offensive you know, team, uh, Kings team, and, you know, in no small part due to Josh Green and Reggie Bullock's off-ball defense, um, their ability to play the passing lane, you know, from that, from the, uh, from the post up and things of that nature, they've been, you know, doing a good job. The Mavericks have tapped into a 2-3 zone a few times. It, it did not come to their detriment necessarily, but um, the Kings were able to, get going particularly in that second game with some outside shoot shooting by Terrence Davis and that, that kind of shot down that agenda. So, you know, I, I do kind of appreciate the Mavericks increase in terms of their, um, you know, that team defense prerogative. So I, I hope that continues, but, you know, nonetheless, a couple of the guys, you know, I, Reggie's been shooting really well. I thought in both these games, he shot the ball really well, which has definitely been appreciated. Um, obviously already talked about Dwight Christian Wood, JaVale, you know, Josh. Um, McKinley Wright in that first game, he had a few good minutes. He knocked down a three, only a second three since he's been to Mavericks uniform. And, you know, the the one sort of knock on his game is his inability to shoot. So that was something that was nice. You know, he got a – I believe he got a offensive rebound and was able to get a floater on a putback. So he, he's showing some different things. I, I do like the sort of way that he and Hardy – in tandem with each other can supplement for that third ball handler position. You know, I, I know Josh Green does, of course, when he's in the starting lineup, but when Josh Green's not out there and the Mavericks are looking for that tertiary ball handling, the reason that, you know, I haven't been as happy-go-lucky to go get a third ball handler on the buyout market is simply due to the fact of the emergence of, um, you know, Josh Green, but not just that, but Jaden Hardy and McKinley Wright being able to sort of fill that role together if that makes any sense you know they both provide different things right he's more of the you know playmaking type he's going to be able to set guys up within the pick and roll he's going to be able to sort of generate and catalyze that offense whereas Hardy you know he's going to be more of your catch and shoot guy but he can also provide that shot creation that that right simply just doesn't have because of his lack of an outside shot he can keep the defense honest get to the rim you know that combined together that kind of gives you your sort of mold of a playmaker slash shot creator slash ball handler um you know that you 
couple all those effects together and you know you have you sort of supplement for that third ball handler role preferably if the Mavericks are if we're really getting into the intricate and fine details you would prefer to have a third ball handler I'm not negating that but I do think some of the defensive liabilities that this team has particularly at the wing position right now um, are just of too much of an importance of need for me to consider the third ball handler a position that is what needs to be tended to over that, you know, like going to get a Westbrook in the buyout market versus some of these other guys, just not my position I'm going to hold, but I, I do understand and respect the opinion of others out there that may subscribe to that theory. I, I just personally think this Mavericks team needs defense. That's not saying that the third ball handler situation is completely mended by any means, but I mean, I do think with Hardy and Wright, you get enough to that effect to where it's definitely not the biggest hole in the team. Right. And, you know, to, to that point, Hardy did play pretty good that first game. He made four threes, and that was all of his offense in that game. He's just, you know, catching and shooting, you know, being that, you know, stopgap within the flow in the offense that, you know, whenever the Mavericks would get dry, he would be able to fill that void. And he was, you know, draining some threes, and he was play- he's been doing pretty de- decent defensively. He's been rotating well, and that's been sorely needed. I mean, him being a guy that can actually – you know, be applicable to fill that 15 to 20 minute void off the bench. And, you know, along with whatever Wright's been giving you has been something that's definitely been welcome to say the least. And, you know, I've loved both seeing both of their emergence accordingly. They're obviously going to still run into, you know, those rookie wall mistakes, particularly Hardy as, you know, we, we see some, you know, errant turnovers and drives where, you know, he sort of gets ahead of himself and goes into the paint when he should probably, you know, bucket out and, you know, regenerate that offense from the top of the key. But nonetheless, I mean, you, you still do love seeing the emergence and you love seeing the confidence that those guys have in themselves to go out there and get a bucket, right? Like that's something as a young player that is a skill set that's in, invaluable. You know, you can teach the other, um, you know, the fine details in terms of, oh, you should have done this on this play. You know, you should have made this pass instead of driving. But, you know, those intangibles, that confidence that Hardy has, that, you can't teach. And I do think it's important, especially if he's not going to go back down to the G league for him to get these 15 to 20 minutes, because he is contributing to winning. And you know, that that's sort of the main argument, especially as a win now team is like, Oh, you probably shouldn't be playing Hardy, but I mean, he is contributing to winning. He is that good uh, as well as right. So, you know, unless they aren't contributing and, you know, then you want to supplement while playing one of the wings, that's, that's cool too, but um, he's contributed to winning. So, I mean, he definitely warrants at least maybe 15, 20 minutes a game, depending on the night. Right. Uh, another guy I kind of want to get into just a sort of point of interest is Marcus Morris. I mean, or rather Markeith. I got him mixed up with his brother, but he has not played since being in a Mavericks uniform. You know, obviously a, a bigger guy, you know, stout, like six, nine. Um, he, he's the enforcer type, right? He, he can play some post defense. He can bang inside. He, he can, he's decent, especially against, you know, having to guard threes and fours. Um, but, you know, the hallmark of his game is not his perimeter defense. You know, he's definitely, a guy whose game is more relegated to those post-ups and those mid-range jumpers and things of that sort. You know, he can knock down a three if he needs to. Um, decent cutter. But, you know, I, I don't know. I know he's not that cure-all to the perimeter defense, but I do think he could provide some defense, you know, in terms of being able to guard three through five. And I don't know. I, I think the Mavericks could use him and his toughness a little bit. And it's been interesting that he hasn't got any minutes in virtue of Theo Pence getting minutes. This is a guy that's played the last three games, like um, – like and he's been in that 10th man role and you know, he's, he's fared. Okay. Defensively. He had one block the other night versus Terrence Davis on a drive. That was really impressive, but you know, at the same time, he he's the best way I could describe Theo is he's like the ultimate utility player. He's 
he's okay at everything, but he's not good at anything, if that makes any sense. And in an NBA, um, if you're going to be that type of utility guy, you either need to be an all-star who can basically do everything at a pretty decent to elite level, or you need to start specializing in something in the, if you're in the NBA to fill a role. And, you know, I, I do appreciate Theo's minutes, but, you know, I would say he's just an average defender. He's an average shooter. He's an average playmaker slash driver. I mean, he's just average at everything. And I would much rather have a guy maybe like Morris or Lawson come in and actually, you know, provide something tangible like, you know, Lawson, you know, he's a three and D guy Morris. He's that enforcer type, but, you know, can provide a little something offensively versus Theo that, you know, he's just kind of all over the place, but that, I mean, he's admittedly, he's played decent these last few games. He, you know, he had that one nice cut off of um, a sort of like horn slip action that the Mavericks ran in that first game where he was able to, you know, catch the ball in transit right to the rim and, you know, just kind of flipped it up for a nice little layup and made a three the other night along with that nice block in that second Sacramento game. But I just don't know if he provides enough of anything for me to really be pining for his minutes heavily, but nonetheless, you know, I can't knock the guy for how he's played. He's, he's came in and he hasn't really screwed anything up, but I just do think that the Mavericks could get a little more out of, those minutes with some other guys, but that's just my theory. Right. But, you know, let's go ahead and move on to this next game that the Mavericks played. Cause I, I do think that this was one of a little more point of interest, of course, in that, in that game, I'm talking about the, the second game versus the Kings, of course. And in this one, you know, we did not see that sort of fiery start from the Mavericks. They were definitely conceding a little bit more defensively. You, you could definitely see that Harris, Harrison Barnes made it a little bit of a point of emphasis within that first quarter to start going at Luca testing that heel right off the bat. He was, uh, he went up to, he went at him on a few post-up positions. He ended up finishing five for 16 on the night, but he had 13 points and he provided a little more of an offensive jolt. Um, Trey Lyles is a guy that made a few threes and was really giving the business to Christian Wood and Dwight Powell when he was in those minutes. Uh, A stark contrast to the first game where he was just kind of a non-factor offensively and that hurt the Mavericks off the bench um, with his 14 points, but mainly the shooting of Terrence Davis um, just severely hindered the Mavericks in that second game. I mean, he only went two of seven from three, of course, but this guy looked, uh, you know, like that. I mean, if I'm having to compare him to anybody in the NBA, I mean, he was comparable to like a Lou Dort in that second game, just in the sort of role he was playing, you know, giving you that sort of pseudo offensive creation, um, but also being able to, spot up off the dribble but also being a catch and shoot guy and you know in in um if there was a void to be filled in terms of you know a guy that needed to provide some sort of end of the shot clock um you know drive an attack game like Terrence Davis was doing it all and this has not been a guy who's been really able to do that in a large part this season but he gets added onto the list of the Mavericks all-stars because he um was absolutely shredding the Mavericks defense down to a T. And his contributions off the bench definitely started to um, hinder the Mavericks and, you know, their ability to stop the Kings. And, of course, we saw those constants. Like, Fox still had a very excellent game in that second game, offensively and defensively, was doing all the first things I alluded to in that first segment. And Sabonis, he was rebounding, you know, even better in that second game. And he was really giving the business to Christian Wood when they were matched up head-to-head in those minutes, Christian Wood just seemingly had no chance of guarding Sabonis, even though Christian Wood did get hot and made some good threes in that second game, as I was talking about previously. But it it kind of relegated Christian Woods 
as to simply just a one-dimensional guy. And, you know, you just didn't know how long you'd have to, you could take until you'd have to pull the plug with the way Sabonis was playing in some of these minutes. Now, granted, nobody in the NBA, you know, is really up and ready to just go ahead and stop a DeMontis Sabonis, but there are guys who I think could limit him a little more. And it was just hard to watch, you know, Keegan Murray didn't have the best game in that second game, but, you know, barring that the, the Kings still just got way more of an offensive jolt from all their guys. Herder was shooting a little bit better and, you know, they obviously had to play some heavy dosage minutes for their starters, as did the Mavericks. But, you know, you could see that this was a game that both teams were severely pining for. This was one that each of them really wanted. The, the Kings would have lost the season series for the Maverick to the Mavericks had they lost this one. Now it's tied 1-1 with one game left in the season series. And for these with these two teams kind of jockeying for playoff position with each other, the Mavericks are now 31-27 and the Kings 32-24, and 24, pretty close to each other in the standings. That that game, if had we beat the Kings last night, would have propelled us to third in the West, but of course we lost. And now we're, uh, you know, a whole game farther behind them than we were even previously. So, you know, things of that nature, these those really do sting. And But we do have to realize some of the, you know, limitations that were on this Mavericks team, of course. They were second night of a back-to-back. It was Luka and Kyrie's first game against each other it's really hard you know third of all to beat the same team in a regular seat you know in a regular season affair twice in a row just due to you know being able to watch film and things of that nature and just being able to you know catch a team's play style more so than anything and all things considered I I'm not too disheartened at the loss it was a stinger but the Mavericks did play well and you know we do got to give them the credit where it's due and in the areas that they played well but we also have to apply the corresponding criticism as well. And, you know, we're definitely going to do that over the course of this next segment. You know, I already kind of alluded to just the Kings offensive output in itself and how kind of limited the Mavericks were in being able to stop them. It definitely seemed like the Mavericks point of attack defense took a little bit of a hit compared to that first game, particularly with Jaden Hardy and Theo Pinson. I, I just noticed, you know, they were both in minus 17 and minus 15. They had the worst plus minuses in the game you know, individual plus minus, particularly in a game, isn't everything. But particularly for these guys, I did notice that defensively, it, it was just a little bit of a contrast compared to the previous game where they seemed like they were a lot more ironed out on their rotations. They were playing faster. Um, you know, they were taking less gambles. And this one, it, it kind of seemed as if they were a little more laxed and they, they were more, you know, even though they only had 27 minutes between the two of them, they were fairly invaluable because they were kind of matched up against Fox and some and Terrence Davis. And they were just a lot, a lot more lackadaisical on their rotations and took some more gambles and it hurt the Mavericks, man. And uh, they, they were getting cooked at the point of attack. You know, the only two defenders tonight that were really being able to, you know, establish their presence on the defensive end in terms of terms of being at the point of attack were Reggie Bullock and Josh Green and even Reggie, you know, he was doing a really good job rotating and playing free safety back there and, you know, picking out apart the passing lanes, but you know, even he just couldn't keep up with the foot speed of Fox and there's really nobody that can, but, you know, you would at least hope that there's at least a little bit more of a concerted effort to slow him down. And, you know, the, some of the Mavericks double teams when they were trapping Fox were just ill-timed and they were just kind of letting him get into his offense too fast. And, you know, I think that's an indictment upon, Theo, Jaden Hardy, and I guess to a lesser extent, Bullock, right? And that definitely hurt them defensively. Um, 
you know, we JaVale, he, I think, played a little bit worse of a defensive game in that second game, though nonetheless, he still, uh, you know, kind of stayed the course and did decent. He didn't play as many minutes. Now looking at this box score again, but, you know, he, he still came in and was serviceable. Christian Wood actually got 18 minutes in this one. Now I'd already talked about his offensive game, but I, you know, besides that one block that he had, his defense was just seemingly atrocious. And, you know, those sort of things um, all coupled together hurt the Mavericks, right? And the Mavericks, you know, to go back to the point I was making regarding how, you know, the not slow start they got off to, but not as, you know, energetic start, I guess, as the first game. You know, them in that second quarter, they were, you know, down by, I think at one point, double digits. They really started to fall behind the margin and, Kyrie Irving in that second game definitely didn't look as assertive, admittedly. Um, there were some positions where you kind of wish he would, you know, try to take things over a little bit more, for lack of a better term. And uh, the fit with Luca kind of looked clunky in that first half. Just in terms of how they were splitting the possessions, it kind of seemed as if Kyrie was just, you know, staying off the ball. The Kings were doing a good job, you know, ball denying him, admittedly, when he would come off those staggers and things of that nature, but it didn't just seem as if there was as much of a concerted effort by the Mavericks to get him the ball. And it kind of just seemed like it was Luco heliocentrism again, which I mean, to an extent, that's the basis of what we're going to be going off here in terms of the Mavericks offensive play style as they go forward. But, you know, you, you do want to see Kyrie be able to bail them out of some more possessions or I guess not even bail them out, but just, you know, run that offense a little bit more um, in tandem with those possessions where, you know, Luca obviously runs the course and, you know, we, we start those possessions off with that heliocentrism, but there just didn't seem like there was as much movement to the Mavericks offense. The pacing was down. It seemed a lot stale, a lot more stale, but the Mavericks, you know, amidst a flurry of a, a sort of late second quarter push to increase the pace. And Luca, as he kind of alluded to in a previous interview regarding, you know, Josh Green saying he wanted to pick the pace and Luca was all on board with it. Luca was throwing the ball down the court off Kings misses and the Mavericks were getting down in transition. And at halftime, you know, the Maverick Kyrie Irving had a buzzer beating three and Luca was getting the ball down the court and the Mavericks were working the corners and they somehow came out of halftime with a lead. And it was, it was quite amazing because it, it seemed very undeserving up until that point. And it sort of gave you the confidence that man, you know, like despite whatever clunkiness and things that, Kyrie and Luca are having to work through within their first game together and the sort of not weird fit that it is, but, you know, it, it's obviously a whole new dynamic when you're at, you know, adding somebody as good as Kyrie into this lineup, just figuring out how they can split possessions between each other, but also work together off, you know, offensively using that off ball movement, things of that nature. And, you know, to see them be, you know, these are two uber talented guys and, you know, you know that they're going to pick it up and be able to do it, but for, you know, to see them just over the course of the game, being able to remediate that process so fast was really a sight for sore eyes. Cause you know, we saw in that second half, um, Lucas, you know, screen for Kyrie as, you know, to get mismatches a few times. Um, we saw once Luca got hot, you know, once Kyrie, you know, the Mavericks were using their sort of different ways to get him open off ball, he started to be freed up a little bit more with, you know, Luca's emergence because Luca admittedly looked a little bit, you know, laborsome in that first half, just coming off that injury and everything. And he kind of just looked like he was getting into his offense a little bit slower. He was, 
you know, diverting more to post-ups and threes. And I mean, he was still uber efficient on them. Nonetheless, like he had 19 points, I believe before the first half was over, but you know, you, you could definitely tell that there well, it was a bit of hesitancy there for him to get into some of those actions faster. And, um, but when, once he was able to do that, it almost seems as if the Kings were testing him at points, Kyrie was really able to supplement in that second half coming off those staggers, those curls, those DHOs, you know, um, those zoom actions all in the in-between it, it was, um, um, all, it was a match made in heaven in that second half. And we saw Kyrie be more assertive at the point of attack. We saw the Kings have to double him less because he was the benefactor of getting the ball off Luka doubles. And it just opened up a lot of different things for the Mavericks. Now, you know, things ended up kind of not turning out the way that they obviously kind of hoped that we would have hoped that they would have turned out and, and no small part due to Luka actually kind of, you know, having a rough go at it down the stretch, but just the ability to have a Kyrie Irving in a clutch time scenario to be able to go to offensively, you know, is just something that we could have never imagined in our wildest dreams. Once we first had Luca here, I mean, the Mavericks have had their clutch time woes this season and seeing Kyrie being able to alleviate some of that pressure is just, it's been a sight for sore eyes to say the absolute least, but I obviously want to get into the intricacies of, you know, why the Mavericks ended up having this one go to OT down the stretch and some other things of that nature, because there were some things that they need to be indicted upon that, and, you know, rightfully so. And, you know, everything I kind of alluded to with Josh Green, first of all, in that first segment, I mean, applies even more so in this second game. I mean, he was fantastic with 23 points and five rebounds. He wasn't having to alleviate as many of the playmaking duties with Luca back, but I mean, he was just a perfect, just Jack of all trades guy offensively. And I mean, who, who knows where the ceiling is for this guy? He's playing off the charts right now. But nonetheless, you know, in that second half after the Mavericks were able to sort of get something going, um, you know, that dy- dynamism that we saw from Luca in terms of his ability to score in the post and, um, you know, hit from three, seemingly abandoned him in that second half to an extent. He started missing some threes. He ended up finishing two for nine from threes in the half. And, he, you know, his playmaking – you know, he, he ended up finishing with five assists tonight, and you could just tell that that drive and attack game just wasn't there like it usually is um, from the perspective that he just looked a, a step slower. You know, he had that really awesome put-back dunk off that Kyrie miss in the um, first I – mean, in the third quarter. But barring that, it, it did seem as if offense was coming a little slower to him. And, you know, we want to see him pick that up here in the ensuing – you know, next week and things of that nature where he'll be able to get into his actions faster and, you know, just play with more foot speed, things of that nature. And, and that's just going to come, you know, with time off this injury. But, you know, so long as he didn't go gain a bunch of weight, it didn't really look like it. But we'll, we'll just have to go see, have to see exactly what happens in that department. But um, nonetheless, you know, like I said, was alluding to with his play, he just wasn't, you know, able to find the shooters off of those driving kicks as much. And the offense just kept definitely got clunky at times. Luca had six turnovers in both the third. Um, I mean, not the third, but, you know, he had six turnovers and a lot of them seemed to have come in that third and fourth quarter. And, and that was a big point of emphasis, I think, to why the Mavericks started to drop this one. Tim Hardaway Jr. got hurt in that at the tail end of that second quarter. And he left the game and did not return. So we saw a little bit of Frank minutes, but he didn't really do anything when he was in there. 
Dwight Powell, he played solid. He played down the stretch. He played the last thing. He was in the Mavericks rotation in those lasting fourth quarter minutes as well as those overtime minutes. He was the, you know, big man that was closing, you know, was playing his typical, you know, Dwight Powell, all-out effort defense, doing as much as he could. But, you know, at the end of the day, he's still a defender with the inability to flip his hips and, you know, be able to guard in the perimeter, which obviously hurt him, you know, and it's not a rim protector. So that the, you know, once the Mavericks started getting beat off the point of attack really badly, especially when Fox just got going, De'Aaron Fox at points in this game, there was just no stopping him, particularly in that fourth quarter. He just started mid-ranging the Mavericks to absolute death. And I mean, even with good defense from Reggie, there was just nothing they could do about it. And you know, when, once he started operating within that threshold, the, within those two levels, being able to get to the rim and um, also the mid-range, along with some favorable refereeing, I might add, um, it was really just hard for the Mavericks to stop at that point. He was just keeping the Kings in the game after the Mavericks were able to sort of, you know, they, they tied the Kings in that third quarter, um, 24 to 24, and then lost the fourth quarter by two, 26 to 28. And, you know, it was in no small part to Deer and Fox absolutely willing the Kings over the finish line. And the Mavericks had their chances in this one down the stretch. And, you know, that that's probably going to be my next point of emphasis, just in terms of how this one ended up finishing out. Um, if we're looking at this fourth quarter here, um, you know, down the stretch, I think with about two minutes and 12 seconds left, Kyrie makes two out of two free throws to put the Mavericks up 111 to 108. Then uh, the ensuing possession, Kevin Herter gets a driving layup. Uh, then that's 111, 110. Then um, right after that, Luca, just another errant turnover. Luca was not operating out of the double teams near as good tonight. Um, he just, and to the to his credit, the Mavericks really weren't finding those gaps within the middle of the floor. They weren't operating as if it was a four on three scenario. They they kind of just spread it out and conceded to play five out. And they let the Kings recover a little bit easier, which was interesting. You know, you wish that they could maybe use Josh Green or Kyrie as a release valve in those situations, but nonetheless, it didn't seem like there was as much of a point of emphasis to um you know generate offense in those scenarios, but. Anyhow, Luca threw an errant pass when he got doubled. De'Aaron Fox gets a dunk the other way. Kings up one. Um, then Terrence Davis fouls, and the Kings have a timeout. And they're challenging the Terrence Davis foul, in which was a very, very long and egregious challenge to which they ended up challenging unsuccessfully. And, of course, um, Terrence Davis had fouled Dwight Powell. I'd failed to mention that. Dwight Powell. Makes one of two free throws. He misses a second one, and the game is tied 112-112. Then um, Demonis, I mean Sabonis gets the rebound. Then De'Aaron Fox, you know, he gets a like almost perfectly, you know, sort of sets himself up for another one of those mid-range jump shots right on target. It just, I think, hits off the front rim or the back iron. Luca gets the rebound. Kyrie misses a 30-foot three. Um but it's quickly followed up with a really like clutch Dwight Powell offensive rebound. The Kyrie three was a little bit deep, but it was open and it did seem, you know, it was in rhythm. I didn't, I really have a problem with the shots. Dwight Powell, you know, gets the rebound. So bonus fouls him. Dwight Powell makes two out of two free throws. The Mavericks are up two with 52.1 seconds left. Then, um, you know, they're able to, the ensuing possession, Fox misses a layup. Uh, but of course, so bonus is right there for the offensive rebound and he's able to, put up a two-point shot, you know, right there in the paint. He's able to make that layup, and then it's tied 114-114 all. 
I do want to make a point of emphasis that Kyrie's defense was great on Fox in a lot of these scenarios where he had to guard him at the point of attack. I mean, I even think he had a block on him at one point, or Kyrie may have blocked Sabonis. He had a block that was really impressive the other night. He was doing everything he could in terms of his rotations. You know, obviously he has his limitations because of his size, but I mean, Kyrie is a good defender and anybody who says otherwise that narrative should be quickly dispelled because, you know, he may not be great or elite by any means, you know, just because of some of his limitations in terms of his length and his size and things of that nature. But I mean, he competes his ass off and his intangibles are off the charts. And so I I do want to give a special shout out to him, you know, and I've obviously picked that up and I've said that on this podcast and the games that he's been here since, but it was really prevalent in the second game versus the Kings. Um, But nonetheless, you know, Sabonis ties the game up. Then Reggie Bullock on the ensuing possession ends up missing a three for the Mavericks. They take it down to the end of the shot clock and rightfully so it was a pretty, um, you know, it was an okay look. He ended up just clanking off the back iron. Then Terrence Davis gets their offensive rebound. The Kings don't burn their timeouts. I believe they had like one or two. De'Aaron Fox tries to shoot a three for the win and he misses and the game goes to overtime. I don't know if many Mavs fans gripes were necessarily with how, you know, barring the refereeing, but um, just in terms of how the game ended in that fourth quarter, it kind of just seemed like it was just the perfect storm of events that led to the Mavericks demise there. But the overtime period was definitely where I think a lot more fans were disheartened by, but nonetheless, in that overtime period, you know, we start out with a, a Josh green made three, um, Darren, Darren Fox is still very much tricking the mouse to death throughout all of overtime. Um, by the 148 mark, he had eight points that basically got all the Kings offense besides a Terrence Davis three at one point. Kyrie took the burden upon, um, you know, the Mavericks offense after Luca, you know, continued to have some lackadaisical turnovers, just wasn't able to establish, you know, Luca wasn't able to beat anybody off the dribble. You know, he definitely seemed to step slower, as I said, and he was missing his step back threes. Kyrie took it upon himself and just made some incredible plays down the stretch. I mean, you know, he had a spin around fallaway jump shot that went down. He had a floater that he got into the lane for, and he was, he was willing the Mavericks back into this game after the Kings got up 123, 119. And then, um, you know, it, it seemed as if it was kind of out of the Mavericks hands at one point um, as the game, you know, as a, the clock started ticking down the stretch in overtime, you know, started to come towards an end. Kyrie was, you know, like I said, just seemingly willing the Mavericks to staying in this game amidst Luca having a kind of a poor performance where we saw him turn the ball over a few times and just not look his normal self within that offense. And I mean, Kyrie had this insane wraparound pass to Dwight in the dunker spot for an easy layup within the waning moments of the game that ended up cutting the lead to 125-123 with the Kings up with about 114 left. The Mavericks get a stop off of Fox um, miss floater, uh, but then Darren Fox got to his own rebound, uh, but then gets tied up by Reggie Bullock. And, you know, they go for the jump ball. De'Aaron Fox out jumps Reggie kind of unsurprisingly. Um, but the Kings really don't have too much time left in the possession. Harrison Barnes misses a three, but then Kevin Herter gets an offensive rebound and makes a layup um, off the offensive rebound. That was a real stinger. The Mavericks rebounding definitely suffered heavily tonight, you know, especially with Christian Woods' lack of minutes. Luca was didn't, you know, didn't necessarily have the most concerted effort off the glass. I mean, he had nine rebounds, but a lot of them were those kind of gimme rebounds. Josh Green and Kyrie were definitely getting after it on the glass, but I don't know. It, it seems as if, you know, Sabonis' size and presence definitely 
Um, he, he was able to harbor himself within the paint and he's just an excellent rebounder. And without McGee being able to play cons- without McGee playing consistent minutes in this one compared to the first game, you know, you saw the Kings win that tie of the rebounding battle tonight and they ended up having, let me see how many offensive rebounds they had 11 offensive rebounds in that second game. And in that first game, they ended up having five offensive rebounds with the second game, you know, every offensive rebound just seemed as if it was increasingly amplified in terms of its importance to the game and the Mavericks, like there, it's not like there was like no effort going there. It's just personnel wise, the Mavericks didn't have the wherewithal to be able to contend against Sabonis unless we saw JaVale play more in this one. And, you know, to a, to a point, I mean, I I think JaVale, you know, I, I said this on Twitter somewhat jokingly, but somewhat true to an extent, he might be the Mavericks best center right now. I mean, he probably provides a little more defensively than Dwight Dwight does. Um, You know, he's obviously better than Christian Wood is right now. You can debate upon who's better defensively between Dwight and JaVale right now. You know, none of them are necessarily idealistic, but JaVale, just him him being a daunting presence at his size may may warrant that argument. And, I mean, he's been just as good offensively as Dwight. So, I mean, I think there's an argument to be made there if we're simply going off the last, like, two, three games, right? But. I don't know. I think the Mavericks probably could have used him down the stretch a little bit more in my humble opinion. Uh, but nonetheless, Dwight played down the stretch and it, it's not to the extremity that, you know, it had, they had Christian Wood out there and his defense was suffering as much as it was. I wouldn't have been, you know, I, I'm not mad as mad as, you know, those minutes, but I, I do think JaVale may have been able to grab a few more boards than Dwight just due to his sheer size. But nonetheless, Kings were killing us in the offensive rebounding department. So after that put back by Kevin Herter, Kyrie comes off a, um, you know, he comes off a screen at the point of attack and he just fades away into this three and just drains it, keeping the Mavericks in the game. It's 126, 127. Kyrie's just willing them down, you know, down the stretch, of course, at this, this juncture of the game. Um, I don't even know if I'd mentioned it was maybe at the 201 marker when he had that just insane layup where, you know, he's driving. It was either on Terrence Davis or De'Aaron Fox. I can't remember, but he spins. And then this just sort of fall away lefty layup that he just shot so high off the glass that dropped. I mean, I talked about, I tweeted this last night, but just, I mean, just having a guy that has this sort of dexterity and misdirection and stop and go motion that Kyrie brings to the table is just insane. His ability and to just, you know, be so agile within the most crowded of situations is second to none and it's really a blessing to be able to watch this guy play you know we'll we'll obviously fine-tune and sort out all the intricacies of his game of course as he continues to be a Dallas Maverick but just this first three games you know he, he hasn't even had really an insane game yet I would say but some of the stuff he does just blows you away when you're seeing it on your team right you can you know it, it's different it's a different effect as a fan like if I'm watching Deer and Fox for instance he does something crazy because you know it's not benefiting us it's like oh like man, that guy's damn good, but, you know, this sucks, obviously. But with Kyrie doing this, as well as it benefiting the team, it's just a different feeling and, and vibe to it all. And it's been truly, like, great to watch, to be quite frank with you. Uh, but nonetheless, in the Mavericks, they only have about 24 – it's 24.1 seconds left after Kyrie makes that three. So they just don't have enough time to be able to, you know, play the defensive possession and see what happens. They have to foul the Kings. They foul De'Aaron Fox. Uh, Kyrie does. He makes – Two out of two free throws. Mavericks take a timeout. And, um, you know, with the Mavericks down three, they end up diverting to, um, you know, out of timeout. 
scenario, of course. And they later say, said in the post game that there was a read option between Kyrie and Luca in terms of who was going to get the ball in this play. But Luca inbounds as it uh, passes it to Kyrie, who um, then passes it right back to Luca after there's seemingly nothing there. He he sort of fades out and flares out Kyrie, that is. And then Luca takes a step back three. The sort of cliche, um, you know, unhinged shot that he takes almost every game that the Mavericks seem to go to in every clutch time game. And, you know, I don't want to sort of microanalyze this too hard. The Mavericks had their chances in this one. Um, but, you know, if I'm going to obviously harp on the, the last second shot, I, I think my general thoughts on it are, you know, if you're using Kyrie as a decoy in that situation, you know, and using that read option, that that is one thing. And I could definitely see the Mavericks going to that in that situation if Luca had been even like competent down the stretch. But I mean, he was just down the stretch. I mean, as I was talking about with how badly he closed that second half you would almost just want Kyrie to just take that last shot and, you know, let him dribble in two or three at the top of the key or something of that nature, or, you know, use some more off ball action, you know, use a stagger or a DHO, at least, at least maybe get something going to the rim, um, you know, to where you then kick it out for a three or something of that nature. Since it didn't seem like the Kings were too keen on fouling up three, they, they seemed like they were going to let the Mavericks play it out, but I don't know. I, I don't want to nitpick it too bad. It's a last possession shot and there was an option. Luca, Chose to take matters into his own hands, as confirmed by Jason Kidd after the hand after the game, and shot that step back three. He's made those shots before this season. It's been a little more of a rough go at it. I know those those shots obviously aren't the best, but you know that that, that was a tough situation that the Mavericks were in, and that and I mean I I think that they could have been a little bit more resourceful in terms of it being an out of time out of timeout scenario, and could have drawn something up better on Jason Kidd's part. You know that that's an indictment upon him, but at the same time. You know, I, I don't. I just don't know how much I want to nitpick it, but I, I do think they could have got a better shot. It's not the reason they lost the game. You know, Luca's bad play down the stretch that was a big reason as to why they lost the game. Um, and, and you know, I think Luca may may he probably could have diverted to Kyrie and you know got him the ball back after you know realizing he was going to have to take a contested step back three with a guy in his face, especially with the the game that he was having. You know, that's just a sort of presence of mind type deal that they're going to have to build up as they increase. In their chemistry, you know, Luca, you know, obviously having the trust factor there. And I think they do trust each other quite well. And I thought they did a great job, you know, implementing that better, um, you know, faster pace in the third and fourth quarters, as I had alluded to. And, you know, they definitely started to get their chemistry down a little bit more. They were finding each other off ball a little bit more. But nonetheless, those are some, those are some of the intricacies and, you know, things you'll have to sort through down the stretch because Kyrie was playing his absolute ass off in that last stretch of the game. And, willing the Mavericks to to victory and you know you would have hoped that they could have came away with it in some sort of way or fashion so like I said don't want to microanalyze that last shot too much but it definitely um there definitely should have maybe been some fail saves for if you know Luca was you know getting just heavily guarded one-on-one to where they could have done something else because you know, it's, it's not like the Mavericks don't have the luxury of having another guy that can go get his in that scenario anymore. You know, you'd rather just get a better shot. Even though Luca can make that shot, you want a better shot is my main point. But anyways, then we, the Kings kind of just played the free throw game from there and they won the game. And, you know, in terms of this game, I don't, I don't want to get too sour about it because of all the things I'd mentioned previously about being a second out of a back-to-back, you know, against the third team in the West. Luca and Kyrie's first game together and them still having 27 and 28 points respectively. 
them not even having a practice together. There's a lot of different factors sort of going against the Mavericks. You know, they've been on a long road stretch here. But nonetheless, it is a stinger, as I alluded to, because, you know, there's an expectation there that the Mavericks, you know, they've gone all in. They need to win now. So these ones sting. But it'll be okay, guys. And, um, you know, as we sort of sort through these things, everything's going to be okay as we, um, you know, as we transition to some of these games, the chemistry is only going to build up. And, you know, next time we get a late game scenario, we'll have to see if they can grow and develop from this. That That's going to definitely be something that we're all eyeballing, I'm sure. Uh, but nonetheless, the Mavericks play again at 7.30 against the Timberwolves on Monday night. That'll be a fun one. Um, for those of you guys listening post-Super Bowl, um, shout out to the Chiefs. They ended up winning the Super Bowl. Uh, my allegiance is not towards any of those teams specifically. I, you know, I'm a sort of kind of, uh, uh, I guess I'm a fair weather OU fan. <laughs> that's, a, that's a way to put it lightly. And so I kind of wanted to see Jalen Hurts um get his but at the same time I also you know I'm definitely I'm not a fair weather Cowboys fan but I definitely just don't monitor them obviously near as much as the Mavericks I mean we're a Mavericks podcast for God's sakes but I I'm just not as big on the on the Cowboys of course but I I, I'm not a fair weather fan I wouldn't label myself that I, I still go with them win or loss so I also obviously have a little bit of pushback on the Eagles but you know because of Jalen Hurts I really was kind of indifferent to who won but you know, shout out to the Chiefs. Wanted to mention it since, you know, any of you guys listening post Super Bowl, and you know, you're on your Monday morning commute or anything like that. Definitely want to make that a point of emphasis. But, um, you know, nonetheless, I just want to give. I just watched the Super Bowl. I'd actually um, edited this podcast and done the second segment after watching the end of the game because I wanted to at least catch some of it. So hopefully, you guys can appreciate that I'm podcast. I was podcasting during the Super Bowl. Um, but lastly, before we end this podcast, I do want to get into some news surrounding the Mavericks growing the buyout market and stuff. Now that we've covered these two games over the weekend versus the Kings and this home and home. First off, the Mavericks on Saturday seemingly had Terrence Ross under wraps. It was reported that they were the lead candidates to sign him in the buyout market. But basically, right as the game was going to overtime uh, between the Mavericks and the Kings, it was reported that uh, the Suns were basically on the fast track to signing Terrence Ross, which was a really just sort of weird DeAndre Jordan-esque sign of events. And, you know, it obviously sucks. Um, But, and I was operating in the assumption that he was going to come here, but it is what it is. In terms of Terrence Ross's game, you know, this is obviously that, that ultimate Tim Hardaway Jr. insurance, right? This guy, you know, he's a purebred scorer, um, shot creator at 32 years old, you know, been always been a solid three-point shooter, whether it be catch and shooter, you know, synchronizing into those dribble pull-ups, can attack every once in a while. He's still uber athletic, about six, 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 seven, and he's really athletic. But yet throughout his career, he's always been like this like terrible lackadaisical defender, which has kind of been bewildering. So from that perspective, I was a little bit bewildered at the signing, or not the signing, but you know, the attempt to go get him. But then, you know, when you really realize it, like it's not like there's a ton of guys that can play defense on the buyout market besides him, right? So taking that into consideration, I wasn't necessarily like too bent out of shape over it. And I was honestly like generally kind of excited. I was just like, you know what, maybe he can play decent team defense just with his length and stuff. You know, he's a veteran. He's the ninth or 10th man in the rotation anyways. Maybe, you know, in that position with him not really having to supplement as much offense, you know, it won't be too bad and it won't be too much of a clunky fit. Plus it kind of gives you that insurance if Tim leaves over the summer and you want to re-sign Terrence Ross that, you know, you still have that that shooting and that uh, that sort of get a bucket guy that the Mavericks would miss in having Tim 
if the Mavericks wanted to supplement Tim in a pick, let's say, for defense over the summer. But obviously that fell apart and that kind of sucked and it was what it was. But it was reported early Saturday morning that there was some, some sort of glimmers of hopes, some guys that we didn't really expect to be on the buyout market. And nothing's official as of uh, this Sunday night that I'm recording this at 10.30 p.m. But, um, you know, two names that I think are, I guess, at the forefront now, after Danny Green, of course, signed to the Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, I guess four names that I'll mention, but two guys that are definitely at the forefront, I would probably say. Um, the four sort of buyout guard guys that I would presume the Mavericks are monitoring at this juncture, probably going to be Patrick Beverly, Will Barton, Stanley Johnson, and um, Justin Holiday. With Beverly and Barton, you know, Beverly, we'll start with him, of course. I, I do recognize Patrick Beverly, you know, has always been this consistent guy who can guard point guards, occasionally guard up on the wings. You know, this season, I, I think that his waning athleticism and age has kind of sort of fizzled out his ability to guard wings as, as good as he has been in the past, and he's not been shooting as good. I'm a little hesitant to just, you know, bring him on as the buyout guy, but, you, you know, we are dealing with that ninth and tenth spot. So with him not really having as big of a role as he was on the Lakers and stuff, I, I would be open to it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't hate his fit, but he's probably definitely like the third guy on that sort of conglomerate of guys I just mentioned that I would want. Will Barton, I do like his game, man, but his defense is just like completely fell off a cliff from where it was a few years ago, as well as his offensive creation. You would hope that he can rekindle some of that only like 32 years old, but he's played pretty bad basketball for the Wizards this year, man. And I mean, if he's the fail safe and there's nobody else left, sure, go for it, right? Um, but the next guy that I'll be mentioning is a guy that the Mark Stein reported the Mavericks have interest in if he's to get bought out. There's no assurance that he gets bought out, of course. Um, this doesn't seem like it has as much smoke to it as the Terrence Ross thing did. But the next guy, of course, is going to be Justin Holiday, And he's rumored to maybe get bought out by the Rockets, but they're unsure. This is a guy that's 33. He was a really good 3 and D piece in Indiana a few years ago. He's a guy that the Mavericks had monitored in the past, I believe. You know, he's 6'6", bigger than his brother Drew. Um, but he has, like, kind of the last year or two, his shot has fallen off a little bit. The defense has, has waned a little bit as he's got a little bit older. I still think he's the most surefire three and D guy out of anybody on this list. Um, don't get me wrong. And I, I would welcome his addition, especially if he's not being asked to play as big of a role, but uh, we do have to recognize that, you know, there are some other guys that have admittedly, you know, either, you know, been a little bit more consistent than he has um, versus, you know, that being Johnson and Patrick Beverly and, you know, at his age, I just don't know how much more is left in the tank. But that being said, he has the best track record in terms of being a surefire 3 and D guy. He's not going to really report, you know, he's not going to really record much else for you, but he's going to be able to, you know, provide that that sort of movement shooting and, you know, be able to guard like two through four. And that, I mean, that's invaluable in today's game, of course, especially having a, a veteran presence that can do that. But I don't know. I, I, he is waning a little much for my liking. I sort of went back and forth between him and Stanley Johnson, but ultimately I kind of fell into Stanley Johnson as probably my favorite out of the guys on this list. He's been shooting 45% from three since he's been on the Spurs. And this could be fool's gold guys. I know this guy has a track record of abysmal shooting throughout his career, but at six, seven, two forty, I mean, the ability to, you know, I mean, he projected as probably the best defensive prospect in that 2015 draft. And obviously things haven't worked out for him because just the absolute inability to, to develop even a semblance of an offensive game, you know, not even uh, an ability to really attack and make anything happen on offense or shoot, but he's shooting better. And, you know, maybe if he can attack off a closeout and just do some different things, he has the athletic 
tools. And he's the youngest guy out of all these at 26. He has the most upside. And I guess what kind of maybe led me to fall into favoritism with him, with him was like, I started looking at the situation like, look, like, okay, yes, these guys can maybe play in a playoff series, any four guys on these on this list and alleviate some pressure from, you know, Green and Bullock and Kleber for that matter, because you don't want to run those guys into, your, into the ground. Those are going to be your four main defenders, but they're going to be the ninth and 10th guys in the rotation most likely. And they're not going to be just, they're not going to be playing as prominent minutes and look like, you know, if one of them fails, you know, you still got lost and you still got Morris that some guys that you can throw out there. I would rather take the gamble with the young guy. Cause if Stanley Johnson's upside works, I mean, you're looking, you know, I mean, he, I'm sure he's never going to get to where he was projected to at the beginning of his career, of course. But I mean, this is a guy who could, you know, still very well come in and be a guy who can guard one through four, maybe even play some small ball five at times. And if the shot comes along, I mean, this is an invaluable three and D guy that you could add to your roster for virtually nothing. Now, I don't know if the shot's going to stick. This is very, you know, limited sample size that we're working off of where he's been shooting really well with San Antonio. I think really since just like mid-December or something like that, but I say go for it and take the chance, man. Um, You know, second on the list is Justin Holiday because you do have more stability there. But, you know, if he doesn't pan out and he fizzles out, you have other guys in the A.J. Lawson or Morris to at least look to to fill that that wing void. I I don't know. That's just where I'm at in the situation. I'm curious to hear y'all's opinions on it. But I do think Stanley Johnson would be, if he ends up working out, would probably be the best case scenario for the Mavericks in terms of this conglomerate of guys on the buyout market that they could or couldn't go to. And I mean, it's interesting and it's a sort of glimmer of hope that the Mavericks could actually get a wing that plays defense because it didn't seem like Justin Holiday or uh, Stanley Johnson were really in this team's wheelhouse or within the array of guys that were going to be on the buyout market uh, before today. But the Spurs want to tank so bad that they waved Johnson. And of course, you know, Houston having got some guys back at the deadline just doesn't need this doesn't really need some of those veterans, you know, they're buying some guys out accordingly. So maybe um, Justin Holiday's next up on that list. But, you know, I'm curious to see what you guys think about the situation. You know, you can obviously fit, uh, see my opinions on it Twitter and, you know, what I think about the situation there as well, um, because I am constantly keeping you guys updated over there, um, you know, live tweeting with everything that comes out regarding the Mavericks in terms of updates, live tweeting during games and everything like that. We will be back tomorrow night versus Minnesota. Jaron should be back for that one. So we'll, you know, you don't have to listen to my annoying voice for such an elongated period of time. So game will be at 7.30. Mavericks are back home. Kyra will be making his home debut. I'm really excited to see the fanfare and the reaction to that. It's going to be really fun. It's going to be a fun post-game podcast. Make sure you guys tune into that. Make sure you follow us at Twitter at Mainstream underscore Mavs. If you are on YouTube, make sure you like and subscribe if you haven't already. We are on YouTube, of course, at Mainstream Mavs Podcast. And if you're watching on YouTube, comment down below. Who do you want the Mavericks to get on the buyout market with the remaining guys available? Or if there's a guy that you think might be available that I didn't mention or is available that I haven't mentioned, comment him down below as well. Otherwise, you guys can follow us at on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcast. We're on virtually every podcast platform. Um, you know, just give us a five-star rating if you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give us a review if you so please. If you really do enjoy our content, that would be heavily appreciated. And make sure to hit that follow button on whatever podcast platform you're on. That'd be appreciated as well. But nonetheless, we will catch you guys after the Timberwolves game tomorrow on which, what will be Kyrie and Luca's home debut. And you know what, guys? I have a feeling that it's going to be a little more polished offensively. The Timberwolves, they're 
you know, they don't have as potent of an offense as the Kings. I'm excited for this one. I'm looking forward to a fun game tomorrow night. My gut feeling is the Mavericks are going to bring it home if I had to guess. So without, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and end this podcast and we will catch you guys tomorrow after Kyrie and Luca's home debut versus the Timberwolves.